prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for your blessings. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds. Help us to hear your word, to receive it, to believe it, and to trust in the promises you give to us through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Turn the I'm not much of a television watcher because I only ever watch television when, that I want to watch at least, uh, not including shows that the kids want to watch, when I am exercising indoors, and I greatly prefer exercising outdoors in the form of you know, running or cycling. And also, very few television series are compelling enough where I'm able to be motivated to sit through uh, an entire season. But one series that did capture my interest for multiple seasons was a show called Stranger Things, which follows a gaggle of these sort of, I guess, plucky children uh, from early adolescence through their teens and a variety of adventures arising from secret government experiments with preternaturally gifted children and transdimensional portals gone awry in and around a small town in 1980s Indiana. And one of the things I liked about this show, besides its, its strong nostalgic appeal, because I too was an early adolescent in the 1980s, is how it consistently maintained a stimulating pace of both plot and character development. But then at some point in the second season, there's this one episode where Eleven, one of the main characters, goes off on a bus, she gets on this bus, and she goes to the city of Chicago on this sort of side quest by herself, uh, you know, without any of the, the usual gang with this, and she meets up with this gang of urban city youths, uh, punks really, one of whom is also an escapee from one of those secret government labs, and, you know, she's eventually able to learn through this one episode how to use her powers more effectively. And that comes in handy later. But, for the most part, this episode is a, it's a massive tonal and thematic deviation that both then and, and even in hindsight, two additional seasons in, uh, it really has barely any connection or relevance to the rest of the series. I mean, it's, it was this very jarring, one-off sidetrack that virtually you know, anyone who was uh, invested in the series uh, agree that it was... It was pretty much a waste of time and energy, and really it was not worth watching and shouldn't have been made. Now, the possibility of making such a storytelling blunder exists not only in television writing and production, but also in preaching, especially when one is asked to preach a sort of one-off sermon in the middle of a really good sermon series. <laughs> and so when I was thinking about what to preach on this morning, uh, it eventually came to me that in stuff, instead of just trying to pick, uh, you know, kind of a random sermon that I'd already written years ago, that all of you have forgotten by now, or you weren't here when I last preached it, maybe I should try to come up with something that might somehow enhance rather than distract from the flow of the story of Nehemiah, which I presume will continue next week. So I began by rereading Ezra and Nehemiah in their entirety, which, as you might remember, you know, they were most likely written by the same guy, Ezra. Uh, they have similar structures and themes. And, you know, it was actually, as you may remember, you know, regarded as one continuous whole work, work one whole book, until, uh, you know, sometime in the 13th century or something like that. 
So reviewing, and, and by the way, you know, reviewing this, doing kind of like a broad over, ver, overview review is a good periodic exercise anytime uh, you know, you're studying any particular chapter or, or passage or set of passages in scripture because it helps you remind you of the overall context. Uh, you know, where the chapter, where, you know, how does that chapter and message fit in with the rest of the story? Because context, of course, is everything. You know, you don't want to miss the forest for the trees and, and all those cliches. So I did that, and you know how I felt when I finished reading uh, the entirety of Ezra and Nehemiah when I was thinking about, like, you know, what actually went on in, in the entirety of the book? Well, to be honest, my, my first reaction was, was disappointment. Not because it's not a good story or anything like that, but I, and I'll explain why. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing, like, you know, you have these Israelites, they're finally returning to the promised land after decades of exile, and, and what's the result? I mean, you have, uh, they do rebuild the temple, kind of, I mean, but it's, it's second rate. Uh, they have all these, I guess you could sum them up as labor disputes. Uh, families have to get torn apart. There are, there are enemies that still surround the, the Israelites. And all of this, you know, the sort of spiritual revival that, you know, Nehemiah tries to uh, make happen, I mean, it, it kind of, sp it sputters out. And so, you know, I kind of thought to myself, man, what, what a letdown. <laughs> and I'm not the only one who felt this way. Uh, look at the very last line of Nehemiah, you know, later on when you, when you read it. Uh, at the end of this, he, you know, it's, it's the, the last chapter is this long and frustrating list of, of people and institutions who continue to sin and fail miserably in spite of Nehemiah's attempts at reform. And so Nehemiah pleads at the very, very end, last line, remember me, O God, for my good. It's, it's basically him sighing and saying essentially, you know, well, I did my best. I did my best. And I hope, Lord, you'll grade me on my efforts if not necessarily the results. Now, disappointment is, is usually the result of unmet expectations. And the greater dis disappointment usually occurs when you have really high expectations. Uh, you know, when, when what you expect just doesn't work out the way you wanted. And there are two ways you can deal with that kind of disappointment. Okay, one way is obviously you can, you can give up and you can you know, either wallow in disappointment or you can you know, give up and maybe harden your heart with cynicism and bitterness. Or, or you can choose to continue to have hope and faith. But hope and faith in what? And why? And so to answer that question, we're going to be examine, uh, we're going to begin by examining the expectations set forth in Jeremiah 31, a uh, portion of which was read to you earlier this morning. And the book of Jeremiah, as, as you may remember, is mainly about the, the wrath of God against the Israelites after generations of, of quite spectacular sin, evil, corruption, uh, and all that bad stuff, which amounts to gross infidelity and rebellion against God. So rather than enjoying the blessings of the covenants God made with Abraham, Moses, and David, the people are cursed. And God's judgment comes in the form of the Babylonian Empire, you know, the, the big bad uh, empire out there, uh, 
who then comes to sack Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, they inflict general mass death and destruction, and the survivors are uh, kidnapped essentially and scattered to the four winds, taken into Babylon. And this results in decades of exile. And there are passages, just to kind of give you a taste of what what all this is about, there are passages like in, for instance, uh, Jeremiah 19, where God describes how he will punish the Israelites. Stuff like, I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food for the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified. And he's talking about Jerusalem here. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their own sons and daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. So it's mostly, you know, to be honest, kind of a downer of a book to the point where Jeremiah is traditionally known as the weeping prophet and a Jeremiad has long been a generic term for any long ranting of sad laments, especially about the world going to hell in a handbasket. And in fact, the world is going to such hell during the time of Jeremiah that it actually creates a kind of theological crisis, which is what which is basically, what does all of this say about God's promises? You know, God promised this land to his people, which is why it was called the promised land, uh, going all the way back to, you know, Genesis 12 and repeated throughout the Torah. But with nearly all of the people now either killed or exiled from the land, that's gone. In 2 Samuel 7, God had also promised David a dynasty in perpetuity. God said to him, uh, your throne shall be established forever. But in Jeremiah's time, the king of Babylon slaughtered all of the sons of the king of Judah, put out his eyes and bound him in chains before carrying him off to be exiled. The palace is burned and the city is laid to waste. So that's all gone too. So not only are the theologically astute people of Jeremiah's time sitting around asking, what happened to God's promised land? They're also wondering, what happened to the promise of David's forever throne? Have these promises failed? The answer to these questions come first in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. This new covenant, in answer to the question of what will become of God's promises, raised by Jeremiah. I mean, that's the answer. And this new covenant is a big deal not only as prophesied in Jeremiah, but, but elsewhere uh, in, during the Babylonian captivity, such as, for instance, in Ezekiel 37. If you look there, it says, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king 
shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. So just from these parts of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that were read, we can identify several characteristics of what is promised in this new covenant that is not merely different, but actually like expanded or enhanced from the old covenants which God himself described as being broken by the sin and rebellion of his people. First, there is going to be a clear acknowledgement of sin and its consequences. In Jeremiah 31, 29, as we read earlier, as Chad read earlier, the, the Lord says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And what this means, I mean, th- this is in response to people who might think, well, the only reason we're in exile, the only reason we're suffering, don't have this divided king and have lost all of our covenant blessings is because our forefathers messed up. They're the ones who brought us to where we are today. And that's what it means. It says they are the ones who ate the sour grapes, but we're the ones whose mouth is twisting in distaste. And so what Jeremiah is saying here is that in the new covenant, there won't be that kind of blame shifting, that kind of pointing the finger to somebody else. There will instead be an acknowledgement that the judgment of God was and is always just. And this kind of wholehearted acknowledgement of sin necessary for true repentance is only made possible by the second enhancement of the new covenant, which amounts to new spiritual blessings hinted in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a paradigm shift from the previous covenantal understanding of the law, which was based, as we all know, you know, Ten Commandments and all the other stuff. I mean, those are articulated external communications that had to be communicated, you know, by some prophet or priest later on and enforced by institutional communication and enforcement mechanisms. And then in this new covenant, there's going to be a, a new relational model between God and his people as described in verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Is there any higher blessing than knowing God? No, there is not. (laughs) And, And that concept, by the way, that to know God has implications of of individual communion with the presence of God, that the height and and width and depth of intimate connection that today we often articulate as, you know, our personal relationship with God. And, And maybe because that expression personal relationship with God has fallen into sort of, you know, the lexicon of contemporary Christianese, we sort of take that for granted. But remember that in the time of Jeremiah, Entering into the presence of God was something that was primarily reserved for the priests and the prophets 
under you know, pretty limited and rather strict circumstances, which you can see you know, if you go back to Exodus. All the hoops you had to jump through in order to set up and make sacrifices in a tabernacle, and, and if you remember, I mean, if you messed that up even a little bit, you, you would die. And indeed, for the Israelites, the presence of God was, was a terrifying thing. When the Israelites are first exposed to a hint sort of a preview of the presence of God at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. I mean, they, they tremble in fear. They, they cry out, you, Moses, hey, you know, you speak to us, but do not let God speak to us, you know, directly, lest we die. And, of course, they are terrified for good reason, because they are sinners, and sin puts you at enmity with God, breaking up any relationship with him and making you his enemy deserving of his wrath. Which leads us to another critical new covenant blessing, the forgiveness of sins. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promise. This wholesale forgiveness is the linchpin to all of the other blessings of the new covenant because it is sin and rebellion which brought, apart the broken, which brought about the brokenness of the old covenants, which brought about the horrific destruction and exile described in Jeremiah. So those are the things that are promised in prophesy of this new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and elsewhere. True acknowledgement of sin, a transition from external law enforcement to internally generated obedience to the law programmed into the hearts of the people, a personal relationship with God and forgiveness of sin, not to mention all the other things, the, old, the, the restoration of the people of God to the promised land and a shepherd king in the line of David seated on the throne forever. So that's, that's, those are high expectations from these promises. Do we see any of these expectations being fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, I mean, we, we do see, you know, some of the people come back to Jerusalem, uh, but it's not all, and certainly, I mean, it's not even most of them. It's not even a lot of them. Well, it's, it's some of them. We do see the, the temple being rebuilt, but it's a lame shadow of the temple that was built by Solomon, and the glory of God does not return to the sanctuary, which, by the way, was also promised in, in Ezekiel. And, you know, Nehemiah, I mean, he's a good leader. There's a lot you can learn from studying Nehemiah's, you know, leadership and what he does. Uh, and, you know, God provided this great leader, Nehemiah, to his people. But he's not the servant king prophesied. You know, he's, he's not from the line of David anyway. He's, he's, not, he's not that guy. Good guy, but not that guy. And the people are as wicked as ever falling back into sin and idolatry in, in, in less than a generation after their return. There is no paradigm shift with respect to forgiveness of sins, nor any new way of knowing God. In other words, there's, there's nothing that happens in, in Ezra or Nehemiah to suggest that this awesome new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31 is coming to pass anytime soon, and therein lies the disappointment felt in Nehemiah mentioned earlier. But that's not the end of the story either. And this is where 
the whole hope and work of faith comes in. For, I mean, not only for the, for the exiles of Babylon, for the returnees to Jerusalem, uh, for Ezra, for Nehemiah, but even for, for us, for you and me. I mean, do you trust in God's promises? Do you believe God when, even in the midst of his judgment or your suffering, you know, whether you think you deserve it or not, uh, when he promises a new covenant to all those who trust in him? Now, you know, it, it may be hard to imagine what it must have been like for the Israelites back then to continue to hope and believe and trust in God's promises. When will this new covenant come to pass? What will it look like? Who is going to come to save us? Who will come to be God with us? When will the kingdom of God be restored? You know, for over four, five, six hundred years, you know, they waited for an answer. As, as their Babylonian oppressors were replaced eventually by, by Greek and then later Roman uh, oppressors. Okay, and the temple remained empty of the glory of God. And cruel and wicked posers sat upon the throne in Jerusalem. So even though they were back in the promised land in, in sort of like a literal, technical, geographic sense, it still did not feel like the kind of place they were promised. It did not feel like home in a sense of a place of sanctuary, community, and love with the presence of God. And instead, it felt like a strange land in which they remained aliens in an emotional and spiritual sense. And, and really, like, you know, some of us, some of you may be able to relate to this sentiment. Uh, you may live in a nice home, you know, surrounded by nice people, but you can't not look around you and be conscious of the fact that we're still situated in a world that's torn by hate, oppression, war, death, tragedy, and all manner of evil and suffering. You know, some of it perpetuated by, perpetrated by others, and honestly, some of it perpetrated by, by us, by you, by me. You know, you, you sense that you don't belong here. You sense that there's got to be a world better than this, somehow, somewhere. But until you can figure out how to get there, you feel like a stranger in a strange land. So whether you are an exile in 6th century BC Babylon or feel alienated in 21st century America, the question remains, what about this new covenant? Luckily for you all, an answer comes about 400 years after the time of Nehemiah when a child is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin descended from the house of David. This child named Jesus has preternatural gifts. Uh, he grows in stature and wisdom and then, you know, there's a bunch of years. And the next thing we know, by the time he's in his 30s, he starts a Bible study. I mean, it's, it's, it's better than my Bible study. It's no ordinary Bible study. And as Jesus goes around teaching what the Bible really means, he says and does a lot of, of really extraordinary things that either makes him a dangerous nutcase who needs to be killed, or it means that he really is the Son of God he says he is who needs to be worshipped. Jesus says one of these extraordinary things one evening when he is celebrating the Passover dinner with with 12 of his closest friends. Well, one of them is more like just pretending to be his close friend as he has inexplicably decided to decide with one of the murderous jerks who thinks Jesus is a dangerous nutcase. But Jesus not only knows about that, 
It's actually part of the plan, not plan B, plan A, that he's about to tell his friends about. And so he says to his friends in, in Luke 22, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And what's amazing about this statement is that Jesus, being the Son of God, he, he knows this is going to be his last meal as a mortal human being. And shortly afterwards, he's going to be betrayed, abandoned, also by all of his so-called friends, all of them. Then he's going to get harassed by a bunch of fools, and then he's going to be tortured to death unjustly. And then as he dies, he's going to suffer cosmically the wrath of God on behalf of all mankind. It's therefore going to be very unpleasant. And yet, Jesus looks forward to this. And the only explanation for looking forward to this kind of horribleness is that either he really loves suffering, which would make him that dangerous nutcase, or he really, really, really loves the people for whom he is going to suffer because he is who he says he is, which is God. And he meant what he said when he said that he wanted to be their God and they his people. And then he goes on, For I tell you, I will not eat it, meaning eating the Passover meal again with his friends, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus picks up a cup of wine before giving thanks, and he adds, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now let me ask you folks this morning, has the kingdom of God come in its fullness yet? Like today? Has, the, has this Passover that Jesus is talking about been fulfilled yet? I mean, to, remember, to, to answer that, remember that the Passover is the annual remembrance of the time when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God sent an angel to annihilate all of the firstborn of Egypt but to pass over the homes uh, whose uh, blood from a sacrificial lamb was on the doorpost. It was a celebration of this past deliverance of Egypt and a future deliverance when the Messiah comes. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to Jesus as our Passover sacrificial lamb. So was Passover fulfilled at Calvary when the Lamb of God was crucified to deliver us from, from eternal death? I don't think so, because we see in other parts of Scripture what this final Passover will look like. For example, in Revelation 5, John says on that day, the 24 elders will sing to Christ the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on this earth. Well, Obviously, none of that has happened yet because we still have lots and lots of people in the world who haven't been reached yet with the gospel of Christ, and all of the ransomed have not yet been gathered in, and the kingdom has not yet been fully established, I mean, not by a long shot. So we still, we still, even today, have a lot to look forward to. Getting back to the narrative, Jesus then said another pretty astounding thing that is either blasphemy or the fulfillment of long-promised things. Jesus then took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that had been poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Why is that astounding? What is the significance of the blood and body Jesus speaks of here? Well, what are the parts of the sacrifice in the temple? And by the way, where Jesus is doing this in the upper room, it's like right next to the temple. Uh, and so, you know, with that in mind, and also the fact, you know, any, any first century Jew uh, who heard Jesus say, this is my body, this is my blood, would immediately have thought of the two parts of a sacrifice offered in that temple, uh, you know, just probably rocks throw away from where this Last Supper is happening. The body of the animal, which is drained of its blood, part of that body would be given to the priest, and the rest of the body would be consumed by fire on the altar. And then the blood would be taken, and because uh, it's drained from the animal before it's sacrificed, the blood would be taken, and then it's sprinkled on the altar and on the people. So when Jesus' friends hear him say, this is my body and this is my blood, they cannot help thinking about uh, this covenant sacrifice. Later, the, he- the author of Hebrews will expound on the implications of Jesus' covenant sacrifice in Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is, and this is the key, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sins you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, speaking of Jesus. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus' body is the real sacrifice. The, the body and the blood of the goats and bulls sacrificed in the Mosaic system didn't actually forgive any sins at all, not a one. But Jesus' body was brought into the world so that he would be the true sacrifice, the effective sacrifice for sin. So when Jesus says to his friends, this is my body, he is saying, I am the real sacrifice for sin. And notice the language he uses. This is my body, which is what? Which is given for you. For you. For you, those words, that is the language of substitution. It is the language of vicarious sacrifice. Christ's body for you stresses the substitutionary character of his actions, his sacrifice on behalf of his people. And then comes the cup, which throughout the books of the prophets of the Old Testament came to represent the wrath of God poured out in judgment. Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And here we come back full circle to the promises of Jeremiah 31. Jesus is saying here that it's his death, the spilling of his blood, which is the fulfillment of the promises God made, prophesied by Jeremiah 600 years ago, promising that there would be a new covenant 
in which there would be forgiveness of sins, in which we would have a new heart, a new spirit, and the law of God would be written on our hearts. And tomorrow, Jesus is saying to his disciples, tomorrow, when I die on the cross, I am going to inaugurate this new covenant. So the answer to the question, how will God fulfill his promises of the new covenant should now be clear from Jesus' own lips to your ears. The new covenant will come, not through the efforts of Ezra or Nehemiah, nor any other work of man, but through the sacrifice of the body and blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. But though this work of the new covenant has been inaugurated, we all know all too well that the new covenant has not yet been totally fulfilled. And in fact, 2,000 years later, we're all still waiting. The world remains a terribly fallen place. And to be honest, even the church, we're kind of a mixed bag. I mean, we got wheat and tares, sheep and goats. You know, we live in a time sort of between the times, a time of the already and the not yet, where the blessings of the new covenant, of the law being written on the heart, and of the forgiveness of sins, they're true, they're real, and we can trust in them and rely on them. But yet, but yet, we still look forward to a time when God's people will be pure and whole and complete from every tongue, from every tribe, and from every nation and every people in the world. So yes, we do live in the time of the new covenant, but we also live in a time of great longing where we have tasted, we have heard of these heavenly things, and we do know God in a way that the people of the Old Testament could not without the fellowship of Christ our Lord made possible by redemption that comes from justification, that comes from his new covenant sacrifice on the cross. But we still long for that wedding feast of the Lamb, for that final Passover meal with the Lord and all of the saints. So as we continue our study of the books of the prophets, as we continue our study of Nehemiah, don't stay disappointed, for they point to the promises of the Lord. And even today, even today, when you feel alienated from this world, knowing that your citizenship is of a kingdom that is still yet to come and longing for that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to complete his new covenant. Long faithfully with hope and good cheer for you will be satisfied in his glorious work. Let us pray. Lord, we long for you and so we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. For we live under the new covenant of grace by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we long for the kingdom of glory to come, O Lord. We long to see the fullness of your grace reigning in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. So we pray your kingdom come and we pray that this would ever be the prayer of our hearts and that you would hear it and answer it soon. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.